Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Amen. The text this morning is Isaiah 7, verse 14. These are the words of God. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this promise given so many centuries ago. We thank you for the fulfillment of it. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, open the eyes of our hearts so that we could understand more of what it is that you have given to us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So King Ahaz was at least a decent enough king, a good enough guy, that at least the prophet Isaiah tried to help him out. Uh, Isaiah is probably a court prophet, uh, not like John the Baptist, not like Elijah. He's probably, uh, uh, some have thought that uh, Isaiah even had, uh, was of the royal line or of the nobility. He was uh, in the court, and that, that makes that helps us make sense of the sign that he offers to King Ahaz. So Isaiah uh, comes to Ahaz in order to encourage him. Ahaz had refused to join in with a revolt against Assyria. He had refused to join in with an anti-Assyrian alliance. And Syria, also called Aram, and Ephraim, also called Israel. Ephraim is Uh, frequently the name, uh, it's the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel, and oftentimes Ephraim is used as a name for for the northern kingdom of Israel. So Ephraim and Aram, or Syria and Israel, had wanted Judah to join them in their uh, revolt against Assyria. Ahaz had refused to go along with it, and so they came and attacked him for not joining with them. All right, this is how um, politics never change. So, so they attacked Judah. Uh, they failed in that attack, uh, but they did not fail in rattling Ahaz badly. So uh, Ahaz, was, Ahaz withstood the attack, but he was badly rattled, and he was still worried about it. He didn't think it was over. Isaiah invites Ahaz to ask for a sign from God, but Ahaz, somewhat petulantly, in other words, this is not a a sign of faith on Ahaz's part. He says, I'm not going to mess with it. He didn't want to receive the encouragement. Isaiah said, ask for a sign, and I will give you a sign. Ahaz somewhat petulantly says, no, I'm not going to. And so Isaiah, God pursues Ahaz with a sign, and this, this is a sign that had two layers to it. There was a sign for Ahaz. What, what, good, what good would it be to be a sign for Ahaz to have the fulfillment of the sign be centuries later when Ahaz was in the grave, for, had been in the grave for centuries. There have, to be, there have to be two layers to this encouragement. There have to be two layers to this sign, one for Ahaz and one for us. So here it is. The text is that sign. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, we're not told this explicitly, but the first Emmanuel, I, there are two Emmanuels here. There are two, two Emmanuels. The first Emmanuel might well have been Isaiah's son. In this section of the book, the prophet has had two other sons with names full of meaning. If you look at um, Isaiah 7, 3, then, the Lord said, then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou, and share Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And then down in chapter 8, verse 1, Moreover the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, and write in it with a man's pen concerning Marshallah Hashbaz. Uh, take note, all you parents who are into Bible names. <laughs> Enough with the Josiahs. <laughs> Joshua's, okay. Uh, Malachalish Aspaz. Um, and these... <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, Isaiah gives his names, his sons, symbolic names. And although we're not told that Emmanuel is, in fact, Isaiah's son, it may well be uh, the fact that he was his son. In this section, so um, the Hebrew, when, when Isaiah says a virgin will conceive and bear a son, the word for virgin is uh, really interesting. The Hebrew word Alma means young woman or virgin. So it means young woman or virgin. It could mean either. And so it was not a remarkable sign at all in, old, in, in 700 BC, which is when this is. It would not be an unusual miraculous sign at all for an Alma to bear a son, all right? That's not, that's not the sign, all right? So the sign for Ahaz was not one of a remarkable birth. The sign was that before a child could be conceived, be born, and then grow to a rudimentary knowledge of right and wrong, the kings that he was so worried about would be long gone. So that's the sign. Here's the sign. Uh, the prophetess, perhaps, is going to conceive bear a son, and this is the part of the indication of Isaiah being in the court. Uh, before that toddler kid, that, that prophet's kid, is toddling around and is able to be told to stay out of this and not do that, before he knows the rudimentary difference between right and wrong, before that happens, these kings that you're so worried about are going to be out of the picture. You don't need to worry about them. That's the sign for Ahaz. But then, centuries after this, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, start, and that process started in the third century BC, the th when, the, when the Old Testament was being translated from Hebrew into Greek by rabbis, um, and it started in three, third century BC, the Greek word that the rabbis chose to render the word Alma was Parthenos. Parthenos. And Parthenos means virgin, only virgin, and nothing but virgin. It can't mean anything but virgin. Uh, you, you're familiar with the Parthenon, which is a temple to the virgin, uh, temple to a, a virgin goddess. So you have Parthenos has to mean virgin. And Jewish rabbis, centuries after Isaiah and centuries before the coming of the Christ, translated this passage with Parthenos. So the first Emmanuel was born of an Alma, and the second Emmanuel was born of a Parthenos. The first Emmanuel of an Alma, the second of a Parthenos. Now, the important point here is that centuries before any Christians were arguing for the virgin birth of Christ, 
Centuries before any Christians were running around saying Christ was born of a virgin, the rabbis had come up with the idea first. There was going to be, there was going to be a son, there was going to be an Emmanuel, and he was going to be virgin born, and he, had to, he couldn't be anything but virgin born. So the rabbis had no problem rendering Isaiah's passage in this way. Now, the thing that, can, for us, the Septuagint is frequently quoted in the New Testament, and the translation is affirmed by the New Testament where, where, whenever it's quoted explicitly, but that doesn't mean that we, we're obligated to sign off on every translation that's made in the Septuagint. It's not necessarily an inspired uh, translation, but where it is where the New Testament echoes it or the, where the New Testament reinforces the point, uh, we as Christians are obligated to s- submit to the text. And it's interesting that in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. And this is what he says. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin, Parthenos, New Testament's written in Greek, Behold, a virgin, Parthenos, shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So long before the advent of Christ or the, or the arrival of Christianity, the Jews were expecting, the Jews were expecting a virgin-born Emmanuel. And this, this does not mean that they rejected the sign that had been given to Ahaz. Of course not. Ahaz had received his sign and had gone on. But this text still meant something. This text is still pointing towards something. So, the real sleeper in this passage is found in that word Emmanuel. When you read this verse on a Christmas card, and you've read this verse on many Christmas cards, or you hear it read at a Christmas program, or you hear it read in church around Christmas time, or it winds up as the text of a sermon like now, the effect is profoundly comforting. Everyone, every believing heart loves the idea of God with us. You know, God with us means God for us. God with us means God in our midst. God with us means I don't have to worry about anything. God with us means that I am secure. God with us means a host of comforting things. But if your experience is anything like that of the early church, at some point you will have to say, hey, wait a minute. How does this fit with our definition of God? Right? I, I love the fact that God is with me, and I'm all about that. I love the fact that God is with me. But part of the comfort comes from the fact that God is, you know, God, infinite, uh, immortal, invisible, dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, God is without body, parts, or passions. God, God, you know, I have all my orthodox definitions of God. That's where the strength comes from, where I get comfort. And then God's with us, and that brings me comfort. God, that God is with us. But this does create, at some point in the program, some theological questions. How can that possibly work? Right? How can that work? What do you mean, God with us? So, let's set the stage. From the very start, from the very beginning, Christians worshipped Jesus as God. From the very start, Christians worshipped Jesus as God. Jesus is the single most arresting person in history. 
He is the most fascinating person in history. He's the most arresting figure in all of human history. And for his followers in the first century, the authority of his person, his ability to take command of a room, his, his ability to walk into a country and take command of the country and just speak with authority and not as the scribes, his, his charisma, his authority, his arresting power was mind-boggling. And that the response that the early Christians gave to this was that of immediately and naturally responding to him as God. They responded to him as God. This in itself was really unusual because Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah, in the nation of Israel, a people that had, that had had pagan forms of idolatry painstakingly beaten out of them over the course of multiple centuries. All right, so they come from, from the incident of the golden calf down to the exile into Babylon, these people had repeatedly fallen prey to gross idolatry. It seems like God delivers them from their oppressor and they thank the Lord and they worship the Lord and you turn the page and they're back at it. And then they set up another statue, and they set up another idol, and they set up another center of worship. Oh, there's another high place. And they, they do it over and over and over again. Now, we sometimes are a little, uh, we should be impatient with the holy impatience with, with them. Of course, that I think that's part of the design feature. But we sometimes forget that when we turn the page, that's the history of our country, you know. 200 years, you know, 200 years, and, and there was a long time, a lot, a lot of generations transpired, but there was a long, repetitive, slow cycle of deliverance, gladness, restoration, reformation, and then decline into idolatry again. And the idolatry was of the grossest kind. In other words, statues where you not only left baskets of fruit and sacrifices too, but you'd throw your firstborn children into the fire, causing your children to pass through fire in the worship of Molech, the worship of uh, Baal, the worship of the, uh, you know, worship around the Asherah poles. Uh, it was grotesque idolatry. And God spent centuries getting this impulse to bow down to, to tangible physical idols uh, beaten out of them. And this finally culminated in the exile into Babylon. And remarkably, that seems to have done the trick, at least as far as external images were concerned. The Jews were taken off into exile into Babylon. They are, are restored to their land after 70 years. And they still have their problems. They still have their difficulties. And they still have grotesque problems, as evidenced by the destruction of the temple. You know, Jesus pronounced a judgment on them. And the judgment came with all the ferocity of centuries before. But this was because their idols were now down in their hearts. Right? Their idols were now intangible idols. Their idols were of another sort. They didn't have... Uh, they, they didn't have the problem with bowing down to made things, creaturely things, fashioned things. If there was one thing that the Romans could do that was guaranteed, guaranteed to set off riots in Jerusalem, it would be to bring in graven images, to march, have military parade come in with, uh, with the pagan symbols on them, and the Jews would just go nuts. They would, they, would, uh, they would riot, they would protest, they, would, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with graven images. So, 
As I said, this doesn't make idolatry go away. In Ephesians and Colossians, it says that greed is idolatry. So uh, you can, if you worship your bank account or if you worship your new car or if you worship your career path, that's idolatry. But it's not idolatry of the old school kind. All right? It's not idolatry of the kind that God had been exterminating from the people of Israel. But that means in, in Israel... If a man were to come to be treated as God, this is the last place on earth that you would expect this to happen. All right? the, the Jews were the last place on earth where people would instinctive, instinctively and naturally say, my God. They, virtually anywhere else you could get them to say that. But here in, here in Israel, this was the, the most remarkable thing ever. It's the last place on earth you would expect people to, to bow down to a man and say, uh, you are my God. And yet, what do we see in the New Testament? This is just a handful of passages. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And then, after the resurrection, and Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. That's in John 20, 28. Then in John 1, we just had read earlier, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him, not was, without him was not anything made that was made. So the Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then down in verse 14, the Word became flesh. The Word that was God became flesh. And then in Colossians, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So, from the very beginning, Christ has been worshipped by Christians as the creator God. Right, he is declared with power, Romans 1.4. He's declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So that was the raw material that subsequent generations of Christians inherited. The, the existential reality of Christians worshiping Jesus as God with sort of a cavalier attitude toward some of the uh, theological havoc that they were creating. Right? And it was some theological havoc that they were creating. Re realize what they're saying. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, whose mother many of us have met, is the one who spoke the galaxies into existence. Now that sets, that sets you up for some homes. You know. how, how does that work? How, how can he have a birthday that we're celebrating? You know, Christmas, we're celebrating his birthday. And how can someone who was born into this world, be the one who spoke this world into existence. How does that work exactly? So, that's a reasonable question, eh? This was a time bomb that was sort of uh, planted in the church, and the people, uh, the experience of Christians, like I said, from the beginning was that of worshiping Jesus as God, but it was not from the beginning the ability to answer all the questions that might be posed about what that means exactly. So it did, raise, uh, it did raise some thorny questions. And it did provoke some heretics who denied it all and wanted to be accepted by the church anyway. 
All these things took centuries to unfold, about three centuries, but by 325 AD, it all came to a point. The question came to a head, the question that came to a head was this, Hamausia and Hamaoiusia. Hamausia and Hamaoiusia. Was Christ the same substance with God the Father or of a similar substance with him? Was Christ the same substance with the Father? Is he God proper or is he just like God? Is he the most divine of all the creatures? So the heresy that arose at this time was led by a man named Arius, and this was not someone from outside the church. This was a, a teacher within the church. Arius said, Jesus is the most exalted of all God's creatures. God made Jesus first. God created Jesus first. He is like God, homoousius, as opposed to of the same substance with God. This is a monumental question. It's a huge question. The, the Wiseacre historian who belittled it as a huge ruckus over the letter Iota, which is the only letter that distinguishes those two words, is just showing how much he knows, which is not very much. That's like saying the debate over atheism and theism is the debate over the letter A. Uh, if someone tried to represent theism and atheism as, a, as an alphabet wrangle, um, they, they don't know how language works. Now, Nicaea settled the question definitively. They said, Christ is God. He's not like God. He is God. Now, let me uh, say something parenthetically, just off to the side for a moment. Uh, in our communion, in our denomination, there are, about there are about 100 churches, and all of the churches in our communion have um, an, a, an array of statements of faith, the reformational statements of faith that they can choose from. They can choose from the Westminster Confession, or they can have the, um, the three forms of unity, the Continental Reform. They can have the London Baptist Confession. There's a series of reformed confessions that they can all that we can pick from. Ours is the Westminster, the original Westminster Confession of Faith. But all the churches, every last one of the churches is, is required to have in their statement of faith the Apostles' Creed, Nicene, the Nicene Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon. So all, all, three of the, uh, all three of those statements are in the statements of faith of all of our churches, and then we can select from one of the reformational creeds and confessions. Now, one of the reasons we're having, we're, we began, uh, we wanted to begin reciting the, uh, the definition of Chalcedon in the service, and we, uh, later in the year we're going to do the same thing with Nicaea, and we'll normally be reciting the Apostles' Creed, is something that, that's, something that is that important to all of our churches, that's one of the essential bonds of all of our churches, is not something that you should be utterly unacquainted with. We, we should recite it, we should know what's in it, we should have it taught and explained, which is what we're doing here now. So, after three centuries, Nicaea settled that question. Jesus is God, all right? So that was, the, that was the resolution to the Nicaean, wait a minute, okay? We've been worshiping Jesus as God for three centuries. Is he really? And that challenge was withstood, and it was definitively settled. Jesus is God. But then there was the Chalcedon, wait a minute. This was another, uh, took another century, and uh, Chalcedon occurred in 451 A.D., but, and it was the, the result of another 
wait a minute. If Christ is God, then, the question naturally arises, is he really man, then? Okay, we went this way. Is Christ God? Yes, Nicaea said. So then, he must not really be man. And Chalcedon said, no, he's truly God, fully God, and fully man. Nicaea had said that also, but Chalcedon develops it and, and explains it, defends it. So if he's fully God and fully man, then what is the relationship between his deity and his humanity? And those are the questions addressed by the creed that we recited this morning. Now, I want you to work with me because these are, there are simple ways to resolve this. And whenever someone says, here, uh, let me explain it to you. I've got a simple way to resolve this. You should have a little heresy alert start to blink in your head because every simple way of explaining this is going to get you in trouble. So if you start thinking, well, Jesus is God the way a man, you know, like he's man on the outside and God on the inside, right? Like his soul is divine and his body was human. No, that, uh, that has been rejected by the church. It's not like a man puts on a gorilla suit it's not like God puts on a man suit. It's not God inside and man outside. Jesus is fully man in every sense of the word. All right? One of the early fathers said, that which was not assumed has not been redeemed. Everything that, about us that needs to be redeemed, every, our, our heart, our mind, our soul, our will, our bodies, everything about us that needs to be redeemed needs to have been assumed in the incarnation. So when Jesus becomes a man, he becomes everything that a man is. Everything that a man is, not just part. So it's not man on the, not man on the outside, God on the inside. It's not any kind of mashup. It's not any kind of mingling. It's not that at all. It's fully man, fully God. So the definition of Chalcedon affirmed in unambiguous terms that in the hypostatic union, we find one person, the Lord Jesus, who has two natures that were united without confusing them, mingling them, or mashing them together, and without creating a schizophrenic. Okay, now, uh, I use that phrase, hypostatic union. You shouldn't be put off by, um, by big words like that. I, I know plenty of big words, like delicatessen. That's a big, <laughs> that's a big word. Hypostatic union simply is coming from the Greek word for person. So, hypostasis is person. And this was another problem. When the, when the church was working through all of these issues, there were two halves of the empire. There was the Greek-speaking eastern end, and there was the Latin-speaking uh, western end. And the word that the, the westerners settled on for hypostasis was persona. Persona. This is why when, you, when you're asked about the Trinity, you would say, I believe in one God, three persons. That shows your Latin heritage. So one God, one God in essence, three persons. The problem was persona in Latin originally meant mask, like, you know, like something you put on, like the man suit problem. Um, and we, we mean something different by person. And, and, and what we mean by person has largely been shaped by, I think, the, the history of some of these Trinitarian discussions. So the hypostatic union is simply the union that results in one person, Jesus of Nazareth, your Lord Jesus. You don't have two Lord Jesuses. You don't have two sons of God that you have to deal with. You have one mediator. 
you have the man, Christ Jesus, one. So that's the hypostatic union. That's the person, the person of Jesus is the result of this hypostatic union, which is the miracle of miracles. Uh, there are numerous miracles in the Bible, walking on water, changing water to wine, the creation of the universe in the, in the beginning. There, there are a number of remarkable things. But the remarkable thing, right at the very top, is the incarnation. What happened after the Annunciation when Mary submitted to the word, to the will of, to the will of God? What happened there was the union of God and man in one person. Now, that which is predicated, and this is, this is what Chalcedon is after, that which is predicated of one nature can be faithfully predicated of the person. What you say about deity, you can say about Jesus. What you say about Jesus, deity, you can say about Jesus. And that which is predicated of the other nature can be predicated of the person also. That which you say about humanity, you can say about Jesus. All right, Jesus had feet, he had hands, he had 10 toes. Jesus had a mom, Jesus had a hometown. That, that which can be predicated of human experience can be faithfully predicated of the person. That which can be predicated of deity can be predicated of the person. But that which is predicated of one nature cannot be predicated of the other nature. And, and they insist on that. This is, this is crucial. So someone might say, why is it crucial? Who cares? Well, let me make it concrete. Jesus is God. Jesus was five foot 11, say. He, whatever, we don't know what height he was, but he was a height, right? So Jesus is God. Jesus is five foot 11. Can we say that deity is five foot 11? No, that's, that's what I mean. You can't predicate of one nature. You can't take what's predicated of one nature and apply it to the other nature. You can take what's predicated of either nature and speak of Jesus that way, but you can't, you can't confuse the nature of God and man. Another one, this, was more, this one has been more hazardous and hazardous in church history. Jesus is God. Mary is the mother of Jesus. Is Mary the mother of God? Right? No. Mary is the mother of the one who is God. Right? Mary does not give birth to his deity. Mary is not the source of his deity. Mary is, is the source of Christ's experience among us in his human nature. She is the mother of, of Jesus, the, one, the son she gave birth to, and he is God. So what are the... <coughs> why does this matter? So there are, there are numerous implications, and, and I hope to develop this um, in, a, in a few subsequent messages as well. But one writer thinks, and correctly in my view, that this decision at Chalcedon was one of the most pivotal events in all of church history. One of the most pivotal events in all of church history. Quote, Chalcedon hand handed statism its major defeat in man's history. In a world, and let me explain that, in a world of undifferentiated being, the state can swell up into any size it wants. So can other created entities. But not anymore, not with this not with this understanding there. In a subsequent message, I'm going to unpack why this matters, but why societies tend to conform to their, their view of what ultimate reality is like. 
I said, uh, if the world is a world of undifferentiated being, think of it this way. Think of everything that is, everything that exists, absolutely everything. Now, is there any basic divide within that reality? Pagans say no. Christians say yes. In the beginning, God created. So God spoke, and you have two fundamentally different realities, God and not God. That's what uh, theologian Peter Jones calls twoism. Twoism, God spoke, and then there was not God. That which is not God, and God loves what he has made. He says, behold, it is very good. That not God is not God. That's good over there. But it's creaturely. It's contingent. It depends for its existence upon the will of God. God formed it. God is eternal. God is everlasting. God is um, not dependent on anyone or anything else for his existence. Uh, his revelation of himself is, I am that I am. God is eternal and everlasting. And that which is not God is fundamentally different. He is a necessary being, and we are all contingent beings. But paganism doesn't buy that. Paganism says that it's all one great ocean of being. There's one great ocean of being, and we might be the little minnows in the ocean of being, and God's the whale, all right? So we, we might have, he's the biggest in, with, contained within this thing. But notice, if, the, if everything that is, is one undifferentiated mass, what does that leave room for? You heard in the exhortation this morning from Ben that the central temptation is the temptation to autonomy, making yourself God. What you have open up for you is the temptation, the lust for infinite ambition. I can climb this thing. I can maneuver my way up. I can, I can promote myself. And there's no hard stopping point. There's nothing that's going to stop me. So, Using a, a, go, returning to my comment about Peter Jones, there are two basic approaches to reality, oneism and twoism. In oneism, all things are part of the same great chain of being. This makes, this makes room in principle, <coughs> excuse me, this makes room in principle for the most conceited ambitions. But in twoism, there's an infinite divide between creator and crea creation. There is one and only one intersection between the two. One and only one intersection between creator and created. And that intersection is our Lord Jesus Christ. But note, even at this intersection, the nature of humanity and divinity must never be muddled. Even at this intersection, the, the, two, quality, the two qualitative ways of existing created and uncreated, must never be muddled. In fact, coming to Christ is the only way to prevent them from getting muddled. So because of what happened at the first Christmas and because of how it was defined and defended at Chalcedon, it is possible, and this is the, this is the cash payout, it is possible for mankind to be saved and glorified without being deified. It is possible for man to be saved and glorified without putting on airs, without thinking, I, succumbing to the 
the aboriginal temptation, I shall be as God. Now, we can become like God. We're supposed to be Christ-like. We're supposed to be like God. We're supposed to, regarding ourselves, submit to the Arian heresy. Right? Right? We, yeah, I want to be like Christ. I want to be like God. I want to grow up into Christ-likeness. I want to be conformed to his image. I'm predestined to be conformed to his image in Romans 8. I want to become more and more like him, but never to the point of identity, never to the point of essence. This is your glory. You will always be a creature. You will always be fashioned. You will always be an artifact. You will all, always will have been made and then remade in Christ. You will always be bounded. You will always be finite. You will always have something to learn. You'll always have room to grow. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. We still have something to look forward to. We will still have something to grow up into. So the incarnation brings us together with God, God with us, back into fellowship and union with God, but with a hard stop built into the system. We need to guard against slippage. Slippage says that if everything is one big undifferentiated um, mass, then anything, can, every, anything, whether it's here, there, or the other place, is no different in principle from any other place in this great undifferentiated mass. But the Bible teaches, in the beginning, God. God is self-existent, and then he creates everything else. And then we need to be kept in our place, not so that he can squash us, but so that he can bless us. If we, if we wander from our place, if we try to become like, if we, if we try to partake, become partakers in the wrong sense of the divine nature, we are setting ourselves up for a fall. We're setting ourselves up for a collapse. And so the point of our union with God, which is what enables us to be with God and God to be with us, and the point of distinction, that which separates us from God, always and forever, right? I'm always distinct from God. I'm always going to be distinct from the God I'm forever united to. I'm always going to be a creature. I'm always going to be distinct from the God that I have union with through Christ. Now, one last comment. And that is, what Christians do on doctrines like this, on the Trinity, on, on the relationship of the divine and human natures of Christ, on the relationship of God's sovereignty and man's uh, free responsibility, on these problems, our duty is to confess what the Bible plainly teaches and not to do the math, right? When God says, when God speaks the word uh, through the angel to Mary, and then he says the, the power of the Spirit is going to overshadow you, we are not told how God did that marvelous thing. How, how is it possible for the infinite God to be joined to the finitude of man and have one person be the result? One, one person be the result. I can't do the math. You can't do the math. No one can do the math. And when you try to do the math, you find you're, you're going to find yourself in some heresy or other. Our our task is simply to say, no, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God. Here, 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 and here. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus is truly man. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He asks the woman at the well for a drink. He's exhausted. He falls asleep in the boat. Jesus is truly man. He's a man. 
He's a man here. He's a man here. He's a man here. And he's a man in every respect. He's a high priest, like, like to us, except for sin. He's truly God, and he's truly man, and he's one person. And that's what we do is we take that one point and fix it scripturally. We take the other point and fix it scripturally. And then we take the consequences, which is precisely what Chalcedon does. They, they say we want to be scriptural in the first instance. We want to be biblical in the first instance. We don't want to reconcile this to the satisfaction of the pagan philosophers. The pagan philosophers wanted us to go with Arianism. The pagan philosophers wanted us to figure out something that was not quite so insulting to their reason. If we say, in the beginning was God, in the, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, a Greek philosopher could say, oh, this is going to be a fun afternoon of seminar discussion. This is going to be heavy. And then, down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and the whole Hellenistic world comes crashing down. The world became flesh? Ultimate absolute truth has a hometown. Ultimate absolute truth has a mom. Ultimate absolute truth walked on this world as a true human being and then was nailed to a cross and then was laid in a grave and then came back from the grave. What are you talking about? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the salvation of the world. That's the only possible salvation for the world. And that's the message that we have the privilege of announcing to the world that's sort of, in a confused way, announcing it along with us. That's what Christmas is all about. The time when Christians and non-Christians alike start celebrating Jesus. So let's bring them along. Tell them. Merry Christmas, we say. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we think about these things, as we meditate on them, you would teach us more Teach us, uh, take us deeper into what you have given to us. And Father, I pray that you do this because we ask in Jesus' name. The bread on this table took months, if not years, to arrive here. And it's still fresh bread, don't worry. A farmer bought seeds, planted them, nurtured them, harvested the wheat, sent it to the granary. It was milled into flour, which a baker then turned into bread, which a trucker delivered to the grocer, and then our faithful deacons purchased it and readied it for us all this morning. And the wine is much the same. A vineyard nurtured its vines for years, harvested the grapes, pressed them into juice, and fermented it perhaps for decades. The point is, this meal took years to prepare. And what this meal represents also took years, millennia in fact, to prepare. God's goal in history is his own glory by redeeming for himself a people through the atoning sacrifice of his son. From the fall onward, God was preparing this meal. He promised a serpent crusher to Eve. He promised a starry host to Abraham. He promised a Passover lamb to Moses. He promised an eternal kingdom to David. He promised Emmanuel to Isaiah. As Paul put it, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In the fullness of time, God the Father set the table. The supper was ready. The meal upon it was his only begotten son, come to redeem us and make us his sons and daughters. All human history was guided by his sovereign hand to prepare this meal for you. So come and welcome to Jesus. Father, we give you thanks for your providential care over every eon of history which led to the incarnation and ultimate sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you 
that you lead us each week to take Christ in, to remind us of the ultimate feast which is yet to come, when all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and we reign with you for endless ages, endlessly partaking of the joy of your glorious presence. In Jesus' name, amen. As a reminder, we are the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet upon this earth. And this afternoon, it would be really great if all this body of Christ showed up at Friendship Square to fill it with singing and praise, telling our town, Moscow, that Jesus Christ is king here, that he rules Moscow with truth and grace and makes this town prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And there will be plenty of hot chocolate and cookies as well. <laughs> Hear the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. <laughs>